indeed, happy Mother's Day to you, mothers and grandmothers alike. Sometimes baptism is hard on microphones. This morning, along with celebrating Mother's Day and, and acknowledging our mothers and the blessings and goodness that they are to us, I want to also acknowledge, as a little bird told me this morning and reminded me of this little bit of information within our congregation to tomorrow, not today, but actually tomorrow, is uh, the day on which Cy and Alice Shear will celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary. And if I remember from last year, Alice said that was only because they got married when she was 12 years old, maybe? And again, I don't believe that. But Cy and Alice, your blessings to us all. Congratulations. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. And if you're visiting with us, then you might know that we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. We've been doing that just for a couple of weeks now. And we're in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. These people, these Christians who are Jews, Hebrews, are not seeing things straight. They have circumstances pressing them on all sides and have numerous reasons of temptation to abandon Christianity, to abandon what they profess to believe in Christ. And so this writer, this friend, this theologian gives to them a sermon in writing, a sermon on paper to help them to see more clearly. And what he wants them to see, of course, is Jesus. And this is what he writes in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, 
but the word of our God stands forever. Oh Lord, we pray again, as we always do, that you would grant to us your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe that this is your good news in your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Hebrew Christians in Rome are in trouble. They had heard the gospel some years before, 30 years or so before. On the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, some of them had been there to visit. They had heard the Apostle Peter preaching the gospel and they had believed. And they had returned to Rome and a church was born in that capital city of the empire. And now, after 30 years of their struggles to be a church together, they've endured trials, as might be expected in a place like the capital of the Roman Empire. And Emperor Claudius, in the year 49 AD, as I mentioned some weeks ago, had expelled both Jews and Christians from Rome, from the capital, for some reason, some reason of of agitation that he noticed. And So he expelled them. He made them leave, and they had to give up their property and their possessions, and they did so gladly, the writer tells us later in the letter. But now it's worse. Now things are are much more difficult. There's a new emperor, a new sheriff in town, as it were. Nero is the emperor, and Nero is not content simply to expel Christians from Rome. He's more content to set them on fire. Nero has blamed a fire in Rome on the Christians. And now there's trouble. Now they face all kinds of problems ahead of them. And they're tempted to abandon Christianity, to abandon what they have professed to believe and to go back to their old ways, to to their heritage that they knew, to their Judaism. And so this friend writes to them this sermon and he says to them, don't you see? Years ago, God spoke through the prophets. You do see that, and that was good. It was good that God spoke to us through the prophets, and many times, in many ways, He did that. And the angels helped. As as we recognize and look back on our Old Testament history, He says to them, the angels helped with that in some ways, and that's good too. It's even fascinating for us to see and to think about, and it's comforting in some ways, but He says, don't go back. Because God has now spoken to us by His Son. He hasn't left you. He has rather intensified His presence with you, this writer says, to the Hebrew Christians who are likely in Rome. Angels are curious creatures, he says to them. They were very curious about angels and found some comfort in thinking about them. Angels are very curious creatures, he says, but they're only creatures. They're created. They serve you. They don't save you. Skeptical reasons abound for leaving the gospel. Both in the first century and in the 21st century, we could think of all kinds of reasons why we might prefer to simply turn back to our old ways and to leave behind what we've professed to believe. But not if you've listened to what you've heard. Not if you've seen what you've been shown. And so this writer wants his readers to see the Son of God who is both their leader 
and their brother. What does he say? He, he says, Jesus is our leader. One of the big lessons in this book, this epistle to the Hebrews, is that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, this writer says to his friends, see Jesus. When you hear the Old Testament, when you remember the Old Testament that you know so well, see Jesus. Hear Jesus and remember Jesus because the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. We saw it moments ago in the Lectio Continua reading, again from Numbers, the book of Numbers, kind of paralleling the book of Hebrews in dramatic fashion back in Old Testament history. And, and Jim read that passage about the redemption of the firstborn of Israel and how God required the firstborn and the Levites in particular to take the place of the firstborn of Israel to serve God in particular service to him. But there were more firstborn among Israel than there were Levites to take their place. And so he required a redemption price of those 273, I think it was, firstborn above the number of Levites. And that simply foreshadows the fact that Jesus would come as a ransom for many, as a redemption price, as the firstborn leader of redemption for us. And so in just the first two chapters of this epistle, the writer quotes from the Old Testament numerous times. He quotes from Psalm 2 and 22 and 45. He quotes from Psalm 102 and 104 and 110, not to mention Isaiah and 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy. That's just in the first two chapters. And now he quotes from another psalm to show that Jesus is our leader and he leads us in our vocation, he says to them. Now, angels, they're curious about. And so he has to clarify to them Again, it wasn't angels that God, and he continues, angels were curious to them because the first century Jews could look back on the Old Testament and see things like in the book of Daniel where the, the, the great angels Michael and Gabriel are referred to as doing battle with the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. And so the, the Jews might have thought that angels had the, the role, the responsibility of governing over civil affairs, over, over the, the affairs of Men, But this writer says, no. He says, no, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And so again, he goes to the Old Testament and he says, it has been testified somewhere. Now, you have to recognize at this point, he's almost tongue in cheek. He's kind of joking with his friends, sort of, because he's quoted from the Old Testament so many times already. And he knows that they know their Old Testament. And so he says to them, And by the way, somewhere, somebody testified, and then he quotes Psalm 8. They all knew Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is one of the most recognizable psalms in the Psalter. And so he quotes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 reflects on mankind's created vocation, which is to govern creation. And expanding a little bit on what he quoted, this is what Psalm 8 says. When I look at your heavens, O Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. 
putting everything in subjection under his feet. King David wrote that psalm. And as he wrote that psalm, he was recognizing himself in comparison with the creation, or in contrast, rather. And, and he's recognizing that he, as a mere man, as a mere shepherd of sheep, and, and even less than that, as the youngest son of a large family, he's recognizing that it's remarkable that he, as this mere creature, has been placed by God to be king over God's people. And David marvels at that. David is representative of all of humanity, really. All men and women who made in the image of God are royalty with dominion over the works of God's hands. Psalm 8 is really just a reflection on Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, where God gives the first man and woman dominion over all that they could see, over all of the creation that God had made. And this writer to the Hebrews had, of course, a broader theological lens than David did in reflecting on it. He had an additional thousand years of history to look back and interpret. And so that's what he does. So he continues in verse 8. He begins to interpret. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, that is God, left nothing outside of Man's control. And then he has this moment of direct honesty. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, do we? Have you ever been frustrated by your work before? Surely you have. Have you ever failed in your particular responsibilities and been called out for it? Have you remembered the struggle when you were trying at that stage of life to figure out what your life was going to be all about? What was your calling in life going to be? Maybe you're there now even trying to figure it out. What am I going to be when I grow up? What is my life's purpose? I don't know. I I get confused about that. Have you ever seen that no matter how hard you scramble in your daily life that disarray always seems to prevail? Is it that way in your house too? Surely it is. I mean, we all recognize that it's that way. It is Mother's Day after all, right? And so it's appropriate to think about how our mothers struggle with the, the, the effort to bring governing control in our world, and yet disarray prevails. In our house, one of Mary's favorite things is uh, to, to create a, um, a quote board. And it's something that kind of carries over from our college experience of some of her roommates. A quote board of funny quotes that people say in the house. Things that, with, out of context, make no sense at all. And so you might be careful if you come to our house, you might make the quote board with something that you say. But mothers get to say some of the greatest things, you know, that express the disarray that prevails. Moms might say something like this. Son, why are you putting vinegar in the dog's water bowl? You know, or a mom might say something like this. Hey, look, I I just cleaned out the microwave oven. You don't need to cook an earthworm. Or a mom, you know, might say something like, Why is dad's underwear in the freezer? Those things have not been said in our house yet. But they might be one day. You know, we're not exactly in control in our governing, are we? We're just not. You just have to look at the news on any given day and see that poverty is rampant and that clean water is hard to come by in developing countries and that 
war prevails and disease is rampant. It's, it's our vocation to govern, but we don't see it yet because in the fall of Genesis 3, we've failed. But this writer says we do see something. We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And he says, this psalm actually speaks of Jesus, who came to lead us by assuming our vocation of governing. And in doing so, he leads us also in our humiliation. Have you ever pondered, that's a good word for it, pondered the vastness of the galaxy? Maybe you know, and I think David might have been doing something like this, and I doubt that he knew this, but maybe you know that the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. I think I have that right. That's pretty fast. I don't know if David knew that. But that means that light from the sun takes 8 minutes and 17 seconds to get to your front yard. That's not very long. But it's a long time if you're going 186,000 miles per second. The distance from our earth to our sun is so far, and yet the sun is the closest star to our earth. Other stars are so far away. One time I was standing in the yard with my kids at night and looking at the stars and kind of marveling at the fact that, you know, you see that tiny star sparkling up there. Well, you know what? That star may not even exist anymore. Because in the time, the weeks, the months, the years even, that it took for the light from that star to get to our front yard, that star may have burned out and extinguished. You may be looking at something that doesn't even exist because it's so far away. The galaxy is vast. And I think David was pondering that as he wrote this psalm and considering all of this, he said, What is man, O God? How humble is man that you give him such dominion? Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, this writer says, because he was creator, but also because for a little while he was made lower than the angels. And he explains that that glory and that honor is now not just because of his eternal creative power, but because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Because of the fall, we all endure humiliation and we hate it. We all do. You know it. And we all hate it. Cornelius Plantinga is a theologian who wrote a a really helpful book. It's it's not very long. It's it's on the topic of sin and its effects in the world. And and he calls it a breviary, a brief description of sin. It's 200 pages long. I don't know if that's brief in your categories, But the the title of the book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a great title. And he's simply saying it's not supposed to be such that the big kid at school bullies your kid at school. It's not supposed to be that the stranger steals your ID and then can use it to do whatever he wants. It's not supposed to be that your body has aches and pains as the years pile up. It's simply not supposed to be that way. And to remedy it, the one who created becomes the one who is humiliated. And that's what the gospel is. He tells us that Jesus became lower than angels and tasted death 
for everyone. Now, everyone is religious. Do you know that? Do you recognize that? You know, our culture tends to, to categorize things and talk about, well, that there are religious schools and there are non-religious schools. There are religious people and there are not religious people. That's just not true. Everyone is religious. Everything is religious because to be religious simply means that you are bound back to something upon which or in front of which you stand and make the decisions that you make in life. That's what it means to be religious. And there is no other religion. There is no other religion in which the one who created has tasted death, has been humiliated along with those who need him so that they might have life. He's our leader in our humiliation. And so he also is our leader in our salvation. He writes this in verse 10. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation. That's an important word here in this chapter. The founder. Archegon is the, the word that the writer used in his language. And that word is translated different ways in English all of which are, are, are accurate and, and, and helpful. Founder or author, maybe your Bible says, or pioneer even, leader, captain, champion. That God should make the, the, the captain, the champion of our salvation perfect through suffering. A champion is someone who alone does something. And I think champion is maybe a, a better word here, a, a bigger word for it. Founder, champion. Someone who alone does something that, and then draws others into sharing what he's accomplished. Our culture, of course, is fascinated with champions or heroes. We love a hero, right? And we can't not because we're made in the image of God and, and, and we need a champion, a hero, and that's who Jesus is. We love heroes, whether they're imaginary heroes, you know, Superman or Spider-Man, or Batman, or the, the Thing, or the Incredible Hulk, or whatever your hero is. Cameron, I can point out here. My brother here has a good collection of superhero t-shirts. He knew this was coming as soon as I mentioned superheroes. At the picnic last Sunday, he was wearing a superhero t-shirt. It was a green one, and I saw him, and I, I kind of have this habit when I see him. I say, all right, that one is... And this one was a little bit obscure, and I give myself some credit for figuring out. It was green. That gave away some hint, and it had a symbol on the front. And I thought for a minute, I said, Green Lantern. That's it. And I was right, right? A great selection of superheroes. But we love superheroes. We love heroes. We love champions, imaginary ones even. We love political ones. You know, we long for political heroes, political champions to champion our cause, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and yet we're very divided on who political champions are, aren't we? And we love social champions as well. You know, Mother Teresa is one of the most famous social champions in history, modern history anyway, and we love champions. Someone who can do what nobody else can, but that everybody else needs to have done. That's what a champion is, and Jesus is the founder and the champion, the hero of our salvation did what nobody could do, but everybody needs. He suffered to the point of death 
but he didn't stay there. And this writer indicates that. He says, he was made lower than the angels only for a little while. That's his little twist on, on David's words of Psalm 8. He was made lower than the angels, but only for a little while. So now, he sanctifies and sets apart us who believe. He leads us as our champion, our hero of our salvation. But he's not just our leader, this writer says. He's also our brother. He's our brother. If, if the big issue, the big, big lesson that we see in Hebrews is that Jesus is in the Old Testament, that, that it speaks of him, then a corollary to that is to recognize Jesus for who he actually is. He's our leader, but he's also our brother. He says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them or to call us brothers. And he shows that he is that in his feeling of our need. You know, God could be ashamed of us. He could, couldn't he? There are lots of reasons why he could be, but he's not. Why not? Why is he not ashamed, ashamed of us? He, plenty of reasons he could be. You know, and sometimes we even try to avoid casting that shame because we are so sensitive to it. I don't have on my car any Christian symbols. I don't have a bumper sticker that says that I'm a Christian. I don't have a, an ichthus fish. I don't have an, a large ichthus fish with an open mouth eating the Darwin ichthus fish or whatever, you know. I don't have that on my car. Not that I'm ashamed to call myself a Christian or a creationist even, for that matter. But really it's more because I'm not so sure that I'm up to it. You know, I, I'm not a horrible driver. I'm not a mean driver. But I'm not sure I'm really up to having the symbol on my car because I don't want to bring shame on the name if I were to drive down the highway and do something that I ought not to do. You know, one time I drove to the office, which is down Central Expressway, and Jan came in a few minutes after me, and she said, you know, I saw you on the highway. You, you drove right past me. And I said, really? Did I? What? Hmm. Was I speeding? What was I doing? She said, oh, you weren't doing anything wrong. But you passed me. I said, you drove right by. And do you ever wonder that? What do people see you doing in your car? I don't have a symbol there because I'm, I might be kind of ashamed to bring shame on the name of Jesus were someone to see me doing what I ought not to do. He's not ashamed of us because he knows what we need. And he says it in verse 12. He actually, this is an interesting quote. He quotes from Psalm 22. He says, He's not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the congregation. I'll sing your praise. Now, David again wrote this Psalm 22. And it's an interesting psalm because David is, is working through his own struggle. He's, he's writing about how men around him are scorning him and mocking him. He's got threats abounding on every side. He even writes poetically that his, bound, his bones are out of joint and his heart is melting. David is, is crying out in distress. And Jesus quotes this psalm on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then David goes on to say, But you, O God, deliver me. And so I will tell your name, God, to my brothers, that is to us. And this writer puts those words in the mouth of Jesus. In other words, Christ sings of God to us. He says, I'll sing of of you in the congregation. He sings to us because we need God. 
And then verse 13, he builds on it a little bit. He quotes from Isaiah 8. Just a quick little quote there. What does he say there? I'll put my trust in God. I and the children he has given me. Israel, at that point in Isaiah, Isaiah 8, just a little quotation. Israel was threatened by an enemy, and Isaiah the prophet declares his trust in God. And he says, I'll put my trust in God. I and the children God has given to me. Now, this writer brings that quote into this context, and the hint is clear, isn't it? Christ, our brother, feels our need to trust God. He did it first as he hung on the cross, and now so must we. He also is our brother in that he shares our nature. What does he write in verse 14? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. My cell phone got washed out recently. I left it in the pocket of my blue jeans and ran it through the washing machine. It was a brand new cell phone. It was kind of a bummer. It wouldn't work. I took it to the cell phone repair shop to see what they could do for me. They couldn't get it to work. And I was most concerned that I was going to lose all the contacts and the photographs that I had on there. Well, the cell phone repair guy was miraculously able to recover the photographs. I was worried about the contacts, thinking, well, I'm going to have to go back and put in all the contacts, because he asked me, of course, you've got this backed up on iCloud, right? Not that I know of. Well, do you ever plug in your phone to the computer to to sync it, as they say? Uh, No. And he rolled his eyes. Mr. Peters, really? Well, amazingly, in some mysterious way, when I got the new replacement phone and set it up, boom, iCloud or whatever it was, you know, the angels from heaven, (laughs) put all my contacts back on my phone. But it wasn't just all of my contacts. It was all of the contacts from our home computer, every email, every group email that had ever been sent out from our home computer or received to our home computer were all put into my contacts. Now I have not 150 contacts. I got 1,500 contacts in my phone. Amazing. Clearly, I need to learn how to live in the cloud. It's not angels he helps, but us. Therefore, he had to be made like them in every respect. Jesus had to learn to live in our cloud. Do you ever think that Jesus knew fear? Did he know what it was to be afraid? When our twins were born, a month after they were born, ten years ago, I got the flu for a week or so, and and I was kind of getting over the flu, thought I was done with that. But in the middle of the night, I woke up with tingling in my arm, and I thought, well, that's strange. I got up to, to walk around to see if it was just, you know, my arm had fallen asleep underneath me, and the tingling went down my other arm, and I began to feel faint. I turned on the light, and I said, Mary, I'm having a heart attack. She took me to the hospital. As it turned out, I wasn't having a heart attack. The flu virus had affected the tissue of my heart. My heart is perfectly healthy and fine. But the flu virus had affected the tissue of my heart, and I I sat there in a gurney in the hospital with, uh, you know, machines hooked up to me and nurses cursing each other in the hallway because this man needs a cardiologist, and what in the world is going to happen? I only have a day to live. I think I'm going to die. And we began to recognize the the fear of what will death bring to our family? We have newborn twins and an under-two-year-old at home, 
what's this going to bring? And we were placed face to face with the fears of death. Jesus took on flesh and blood. He took on our very nature so that he could die. And as this writer says, deliver us who through fear of death were slaves. You're afraid of death. You may or may not know it. You may have been to the edge of it and back and begun to realize the fear of what actually happens at that moment. Or maybe not. Maybe you just don't think about it. But, but you're afraid of death. You're, you're enslaved to that. Because apart from Christ, you don't know what will happen beyond it. This writer says that he destroyed our fear of death by entering the very death that we fear. But he didn't just die for the sake of dying. It's what he did in death that frees us. He took our burden. What does he say? As our brother, he took our burden. He became a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, a priest had a particular job in the Old Testament. And these people, these Hebrews, would have known it well. A a priest would stand between God and man. A priest would represent the people before God, and he would represent God to the people. He would stand between them, and he would make sacrifices for their sins. And propitiation is a big theological word here that he uses, but it's an important word because... It is, a propitiation is, a sacrifice that removes wrath. For instance, in our little world, if a man forgets his anniversary, you know, say, just for the sake of argument, if Cy Shear tomorrow forgot that it was his 65th wedding anniversary, he won't. He wouldn't, he didn't need me to remind him. But if he did, just say that he did. If he forgot and the next day came around and Alice said to him, Hey, Cy, do you know what yesterday was? And he said, oh, yeah. At that point, after 65 years, I mean, it's not like it's the fifth anniversary. It's their 65th. You know, Cy would have to go out and get not two dozen roses for Alice. He'd have to go out and get 2,000 roses for Alice as a propitiation for his sins, right? To remove the wrath that would surely be there. I can't imagine Alice being wrathful in that way. But that's what propitiation is. It's, it's a sacrifice that removes wrath. We could not, as, as light-hearted as we might make of it, we could not do this for God. There is nothing that you can do to bring about forgiveness for sins, but the good news is this. There is nothing that you need to do. As our brother, Jesus in death took our burden. He is our propitiation. He is our sacrifice that removes wrath. As our brother, he's been where we are. And so he tags on this tiny application at the end. But it's a big one. So he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's been in your shoes. He's been where you are. He is your brother still. And he's not ashamed to call you that brother, sister. He is your brother. And so he's able to help those who are being tempted. To the Hebrews, he says, you're being tempted to doubt the gospel. I recognize that. You're being tempted to doubt it, to turn back to where you came from. You're being tempted to rely on your old ways, he says. But 
Have you listened to what you've heard? Have you seen what you've been shown? He says, whatever you see, we see Jesus, who is our leader and he's our brother. So take heart and hold fast in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to believe and to walk in your way, recognizing that you, by your Son, have gone before us so that in him we might have life and have it abundantly. In his name we pray. Amen.